Now, over the past number of years, uh, multinational companies, uh, political parties, even sort of local businesses have slowly but surely begun to appreciate the value of slogans and the value of catchphrases in projecting a certain image. Isn't that right? A slogan in the 21st century is the capitalist's uh, best friend. If I say to you, just do it, Immediately, everybody knows I'm talking about a you know big sportswear manufacturer, aren't I? Or let's go for another one. Maybe not everyone will get this one, but if I say better together, then some of us will think back to the Scottish referendum and to one campaign's ideals. Okay, we get the idea, do we? Slogans, catchphrases uh, everywhere in the modern world. Well, as we continue, ah, as we continue. In Matthew 5, we come to these three words. Our Lord says to us, love your, what is it? Love your enemies. And isn't it true that for the world as it looks on, the world says that that seems to encapsulate much of the Christian life. Isn't that how people think? The world out there, our society out there thinks that's our slogan, doesn't it? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. That's the heart of the Christian life, we are told. I've got a really basic question about that. If that's our slogan, if that's a catchphrase, if the world thinks that's a catchphrase, what does it mean? Like, you and me are called to love our enemies. So, first of all, I want to know, who are our enemies as Christians? But then, hang on a second, we're to love them. What on earth does that look like? How are we, as God's people, supposed to love our enemies? Well, this morning, in our short time uh, together, what we're going to do is we are going to delve into Scripture, into God's Word, to hear what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say to us today about these matters. So the first thing that we ought to do is to have Scripture open in front of us. So from young to not so young, Let's make sure that we're open at Matthew 5 on page 811. Have scripture there open in front of you. Now, the first thing, there'll be a few headings, not too many, but a few. And the first of those this morning is this. We see here the instruction of love. That's the first thing to get our heads around, the instruction I do not think that I've got to spend a whole heap of time talking about the background and the setting to this. Do I? If you've been here for this sermon series, then you know exactly what's going on, don't you? Matthew, at this point here, you know that Jesus is speaking to his people and he is revealing to his people what heart righteousness looks like. He's revealing the fruit that new life in Christ Jesus should should bring. You also know actually how Jesus has been doing this, don't you? That he's been teaching us by a series of contrasts. So Jesus has been contrasting truth, contrasting his teaching with errors, you know, like mistakes that were being taught by the Pharisees at the time in the first century. Well, just as a a torch shines most brightly in a room that's been darkened. What's the, what's the first thing we have to do here? Like, if we're, if we're gonna understand what Jesus is saying to us, if He's teaching us by a series of contrasts, if there's a contrast here, what's the first thing you have to know and I have to know? 
What, what's the contrast? If he's contrasting himself with the Pharisees, then what, what error, what was the Pharisee teaching in the first century world? Well, you guess what? You've got it in front of you, so let's look at it. Look at verse 43. What were the Pharisees teaching? Let's look at it. Let's read it together, shall we? Verse 43. So the Pharisees were saying, you have heard it said, the Pharisees were saying, you shall love, now pay really close attention to it, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if you were here last week, do you remember what we said last week about the phrase? That phrase last week was taken straight out of Scripture, wasn't it? It was taken straight out of Exodus. Now, surely all of us can see that that phrase there is not taken directly out of Scripture. Do we all get that? Certainly not in that form. In fact, if you've had your coffee and you're with me on this, maybe you notice that there's actually two mistakes there that the Pharisees were making in that phrase. Two? Uh, let's look at it. First of all, do you notice they've left something out? I wonder, I'd love to know if you get it. There's an omission, yeah? Some of us get it, don't we? See, what are they teaching? They're teaching, love your neighbor. But what did Reverend Perkins read out in Leviticus earlier on? It wasn't love your neighbor, was it? What did God say? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. And you see what the Pharisees are doing? Ah, They've just conveniently left out those words. They've conveniently sort of reduced the high standard that God is calling for his covenant people. They're diminishing immediately this call to love. You see? It's not love your neighbor as yourself. It's just, yeah, love your neighbor. But then there's a second mistake with it. Look back at it. Surely you got this, didn't you? There's an addition or there is an insertion. Because what they say in verse 43, they're saying, Love your neighbor and, wow, and hate your enemy. Now, maybe you don't come to church, right? Maybe this is your first time ever at a church, you know? Maybe that's the case. Surely, even if that is true, you know that biblical Christianity does not teach hate your enemy, that that is not anywhere in the Bible. So what we're asking, of course, is, well, how can the Pharisees possibly teach that and base it in Scripture? How do they... How do they possibly, with good conscience, teach hate your enemy? You want their argument. Here's, their arg- here's the argument. First century Pharisee. They conveniently ignore the portions of Scripture that God calls for love and care of the outsider or sojourner. They ignore that. And this is their argument. That since that command was written to the people of Israel in Leviticus, that the command, love your neighbor was only a command to love your fellow Jew. You see the argument they're putting forward in the first century? Leviticus, written to the people of Israel. So they say, they teach, oh, well, that is a command to love our fellow Jew. And then they extend it to say, and then God wants us to hate those who are not our fellow Jew. And if you follow that, and I hope and I pray that you do, surely you're disgusted by that, are you not? I mean, is that not an abhorrent thing? God gives his people this beautiful, and isn't that a beautiful command, love your neighbor as yourself? What does the Pharisee do? The Pharisee takes it, twists it, uses it to promote hatred in the first century world. So you're with me. That's a pretty darkened room, isn't it? What do we have to do next? Come on. 
We have to shine some light into that room, don't we? So we need to know what Jesus says to you and to me. So let's look at verse 44. What is the contrast? This is what Jesus, Christian friend, Jesus says this to us. This is for us. So what does he say? Verse 44. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, let's just deal with the three words. Drink them in. He says to you, love your enemies. Now, here's how we're going to play this. Okay, in a moment, we're going to get a really big principle that governs this section of scripture. But here, all I want to do is just throw out three really brief bullet points about those three words. Okay, love your enemies. So all you need to do is pay attention to love your enemies. First thing I want to say to you about that, maybe you noticed it, is that it is, love your enemies is anticipatory. Isn't it? Love your enemies. Like, just just use your imagination for a moment here. Imagine you were there at the time. We've done this over the series. Like, don't you think it would have been absolutely idyllic and beautiful to be there at that moment when Jesus is talking? I, for one, think it would be just beautifully idyllic in a sense, wouldn't it? You're halfway up a mountainside in the Middle East, so it's a little bit cooler. The sun's still shining, though. Well, that sounds appealing, right? Doesn't it? And we're sitting there with a group of friends, some new, some old. And we are, at this point, we are listening to the Lord Jesus Christ preach at the beginning of his ministry. So idyllic and so beautiful. And so because of how ideal it is, what's the furthest thing from your mind at this point? The idea of having an enemy. The idea of persecution. That's a million, million miles away from you. And yet, what is it Jesus says to us? He doesn't say, oh, in the unlikely event that you'll have an opponent. And he doesn't say, oh, well, you know, bizarrely, you know, you might, uh, might develop persecution. No, do you know what he says? This is going to happen to you. That's what he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount. If you live to this standard that I'm calling for, persecution is inevitable for the people of God. He says, love your enemies. He assumes that you and I as Christians are going to have enemies. Love your enemies. He assumes it's going to happen to us. And maybe we just really got to tie that down right now because maybe you're sitting there thinking, this sermon is not for me because I do not have enemies. Is that what you're saying, Christian friend? Don't have persecution, not ridicule for my faith. Then I have to say this back to you, although it might sound hard, that reveals a problem in your life, doesn't it? We think of the logic. If on one hand, Jesus say, assumes you're going to have enemies. If you live in the way he wants you to live, he assumes there'll be enemies. And then you sit and say, but Lord, I don't have enemies. Then what's the conclusion? Perhaps you and I are not living as openly and overtly as Christians as we ought to be doing. So it's anticipatory. That's the first thing. Second thing about it, though, as well. Do you notice that it is all inclusive? Love your enemies. It's all encompassing, all inclusive. Did you notice that? Like it's very, very subtle. But maybe you noticed that Jesus changes the terminology here. There's this very subtle change. He takes what the Pharisees say and he makes it plural. Does everyone notice that? Have a look at it again. You see how he makes it plural. The Pharisees are teaching, hate your enemy. Singular. Hate your enemy. And Jesus turns that on his head. And he doesn't just talk about love. He makes it plural and says, no, actually, you've got to love your enemies. Now, maybe you would say to me, but there doesn't seem to be that much in that, Andy. I mean, he's just made it plural. 
But we know scripture well enough to know that's not just an accident. And you see what Jesus is doing? He is making his statement here comprehensive for you. So the message before you in scripture is not, well, out of your enemies, ensure that you care for one of them. (laughs) And not of you, you have enemies in your Christian life. Well, make sure along this journey of your Christian life, at least you're loving some of your enemies. Do you actually see the messages from the Lord Jesus Christ? It is all-encompassing, it is comprehensive. And he says to you, love your enemies, plural. Love them, love all of them. So it's anticipatory, it's all-encompassing or all-comprehensive. But it's also the third of these, is it is an appeal. And it's an appeal. Now I want you to think about that, because what is the tone, do you think, of Jesus' comment here, love your enemies? What do you think is happening, love your enemies? Do you think that this is a commendation of love towards your enemy? What, what do you think of the tone here? Do you think Jesus is saying this? He's saying, London City Presbyterian Church, you know what would be really nice? As if you loved your enemies. Do you think that's the tone of Matthew 5? I'd be real, honestly, I would love it if you loved your enemies. That, do you think is that a commendation? Can I say this to you? Please listen to this. It is not a commendation. This before you is a command from the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that should wake you up. I think that should make us all pause and consider that. That what is happening here right now this morning is that the Lord God, through his word, confronts his people and he demands of us, he commands us to love and he commands us to love our enemies. That is the instruction of love. Okay, let's move on. A second thing, if we see the instruction of love. Second of all, uh, we need to consider the imitation of love. The imitation of love. And, and you'll be patient with me just now, I'm sure, because I want to speak to the younger people. That's not like under 40, but maybe under 10. Okay. So the boys, girls, you've got your worksheet, some of you, but if you listen to me just for a moment, uh, boys and girls, have any of the boys and girls played cricket before? Have you ever played cricket before? Yeah, one or two of the boys and girls. I'm getting a few nods, a few shakes of the head. Cricket's a great game. Okay, and I want to tell you just very briefly how I learned to play cricket. Um, what happened was one day when I was very young, my dad took me and my brother to the park. Do you know what he wanted to do? He wanted to teach us how to bowl a cricket ball properly, boys and girls. Okay, so we were, my brother and I were quite excited because we wanted to play cricket. We wanted to know how to do this. So that's the first thing my dad did. He did two things. The first thing he did was he told us how to bowl a cricket ball. So he took a cricket ball with him and he talked to us about it. He said, this is how you hold it. This is how you mark a run up, boys and girls. And then he said, or not boys and girls at the time, he said, whatever he called us which probably can't be repeated, actually. And he said, this is how you hold the cricket ball, this is how you mark a run-up, and this is how you deliver the cricket ball to be quick, to be accurate. So what's the first thing he did? He talked us through it. But do you know what the second thing he did was, boys and girls? You listen for this. My dad showed us how to do it. He demonstrated bowling a cricket ball. I think that my dad 
must have been quite a handy cricketer when he was young. Not so much now that he's 70-something, but he was in his youth quite good. So he showed us how to use a cricket ball. So he took the ball himself and he marked up this run-up and he came charging in and he delivered this ball as fast and as accurate. Now, boys and girls, do you see what he was doing in that second thing? Do you see why he showed us? What he was doing was setting a standard or a benchmark for me and my brother to follow. Wasn't that what he was doing? He was in effect by showing us, he was saying to us, do you know what you've got to do to learn to play cricket? He said, imitate your dad. That's what he was doing, wasn't it? By showing us, he says, imitate your father. Now, I've got to go speak to the adults again because they all think that I've lost the plot at this precise moment. But I wonder, friends, if you see that that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing for you today, In Matthew chapter 5, he is not simply telling you, love your enemies. He is showing you in this portion of scripture that there is a benchmark and a standard that you are called to follow. Now, that's exciting, isn't it? So we want to know, what is this standard? What is this benchmark that we're to meet? Have a look at it in verse 45. Great verse. Look at it. So Jesus tells us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now, look at the purpose clause. Have a look at it. And he says, love your enemies, love your enemies, people, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. You'll see at the end of the section, be perfect because your Father is perfect. Do you see what he's calling for? Listen to the words that are coming out of my mouth. There, the Lord Jesus Christ is calling for family resemblance in these things. That the benchmark for the way that we are to treat our enemies is what? It is the standard that God has set for us. Isn't that what's going on here? Jesus saying to you, when it comes to the way you love, what are you to do? What am I to do in the, when it comes to love? We are to imitate our Father. When it comes to loving our enemies. Now, that's beautiful. I love this idea that we are to follow after God. But isn't there a matter, a problem we've got to address? If we are to follow God's love of his enemies, what do we first need to know right at this point? We need to know how does God the Father love his enemies? How does God love? If we're to follow after that, well... Praise be to God, he shows us. Look at verse 46 with me, please. And I've got a task for you. If you can find verse 46, I'll give you a second to find it. What I would ask you to do in verse 46, 47, I'd ask you just to notice the examples that the Lord Jesus Christ uses here. Maybe the boys and girls can pick up on it as well. Verse 46, 47, what are the examples that Jesus uses? Let me read it. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Okay, ready for the first example? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Then keep reading in verse 47. And if you greet only, if you only love your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? And then here's the second one. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So does everyone pick up the two examples he's using? Jesus uses the tax collectors and Gentiles. What do we in this room know about tax collectors and Gentiles? We know that they were utterly despised by the Jews, weren't they? We all know that. 
The tax collectors were despised. Gentile dogs despised by the Jews. Do you see the point that Jesus is making? If we, friend, only love the people closest to us, if we only love the people at church, if we only love our family, if we only love our friends, then what's he saying? We do not differentiate ourselves from the world at all. He says, if you only the people closest to you, you're no better than who? The lowest rung of society. That's what he's saying. You're no better than the scum of the earth. Even they do that. Do you see the point he's saying? How do we love like the Father? We must love differently to the world around us. The standard for us is so much higher than the people on Aldersgate Street. But then there's a second truth for us, and you'll see it halfway through verse 45. Please look at it, verse 45. Halfway through. How do we love our enemies like our Father? Jesus says, For God makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. How do we love like our Father? He says, And God sends rain on both the just and the unjust. Now you can, you're all theologically minded. You all know what that is. That's common grace. Isn't it God sending sun on the evil and the person who is not evil? That is God's provision, isn't it? Not his salvation, but his provision being poured out on all people. Isn't that something? That God's goodness, his care, his love is not dependent on how a person treats him. Common grace. His care for people is not dependent on how they view God, their attitude towards God. God pours it out in all people. And that's a beautiful thing. But isn't it so challenging? Because what is Christ saying to you? He's saying that's how you have to love people. He's saying that our love has to mirror God's common grace. We're not just to love people who we think deserve to be loved. Like we're not just to love the people in church that we like or we think are nice. We're not just to love the people of London that we think all have a nice attitude towards us. It's to mirror God's common grace. What's our love to be like? It's that our love covers everyone. We're to love irrespective of how people view and treat us. And again, I say to you, like, I do not know some of you this morning. There are a lot of visitors to London City Presbyterian Church over these last few weeks. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I don't know, though, where you stand before God. And this might be true, that you think this morning that this can't be true. No way that the God of the Bible could love people who are hostile to him. That's not how the God of the Bible works, the God of Christianity. God loves people who are antagonistic to him. There's no way that is true. And I rejoice because I have somewhere to point you for proof, 100% proof. Because I ask you this morning, what do you see when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross at Calvary? What do you see there? And you look back at me, you say, Ah, we see the depth of the love. Wow, God the Father must love if he sent his son. But I ask you to consider the object of the love. For whom did Christ die? Consider it. He was dying for the Father's enemies. Isn't that what Romans teaches us? Romans 5. God showed his love for us in this. While we were still Sinners, 
while we were still opposed and antagonistic to God, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And we rejoice in that as Christians. But what a challenge it brings. Because it means that when we look to Golgotha, we see the love we are called to emulate. You, Christian friend, are not just called to love the people closer to you. And you're not just called to love... You're not just called to love people who you think deserve it. You are called to love your enemies. And if you do it, what are you doing? Think back to me in a park with a cricket ball. If you love your enemies, what are you doing? Yes, imitating your father. So we see the same thing, imitation of love. But the last point this morning, we see... The implementation of love. Again, I, I wonder this, and I, I, if this is true of you, I want you to, over your lunch, consider this. I wonder if you think that this sermon is not relevant to you, that you don't have peace. Or we've seen if you're a Christian, that is problematic. Not that we go looking for trouble, but that we ought to, if we're living for Christ, face ridicule and persecution. I want you to think about another side of that, though. And it's the fact that in this room right now, Right now, might not be the case for you, but right now there are people for whom this subject is all too real. There are people in this room just now who face ongoing ridicule at work because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. You know that snidey remark, day in, day out, oh, you won't be doing that. You won't speak like that. You're a Christian. That attitude, that ridicule, that's happening here to people in this room. Here's another one that we don't very often think about. The kids. I think unknown to parents, perhaps, that some of the children in this place are bullied in school. Why? Simply because they attend church or because they talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't think about that all too often. There are people here in this room just now who face persecution and opposition from their families. Isn't that something? People who go, uh, you know, they're parents' houses or brother and sister's houses and it's just remark after remark. It's antagonism, real antagonism because these people are not sharing the same faith. This is, you understand what I'm saying to you? This is not out there. This isn't here. This is real. So how do we have to close the sermon? We have to. The last place we have to go is to the real practicality of this. You've heard from the Lord Jesus Christ in this word. You are to love your enemies. What do we ask then? Lord, how? Let me Chuck bullet points at you very briefly. First is this. To love your enemy, you must speak kindly to your enemy. You must speak kindly to your enemy. Like you know, don't you? You know scripture well in this congregation. You do. And you probably know what Romans 12 says. What does Paul say to us about persecution and enemies in Romans 12? He says to us, looks to us and says to us, bless your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. And isn't that exactly what we need to do? And I do want to apply this to the younger people and to the boys and girls. So again, boys and girls, you listen to this. What do we do if at school people are nasty to us about the fact that we go to church? Might not happen now, but it may happen. It will happen in a few years' time. We do, boys and girls. Do you know what scripture says? Scripture says, respond to that with loving words. 
that what we have to do is to meet that abuse that we face in the school playground or the classroom. We meet that with these loving, gentle, tender words, tender speech. God tells us to bless those who persecute us. So first thing, we must speak kindly to people. Second thing, we must act generously to our enemies. Act generously to our enemies. You all know C.S. Lewis, don't you? Most of you will know C.S. Lewis. He's cherished by many in this congregation. Now, I'm going to tell you what C.S. Lewis has to say about this very topic. I'm not going to quote it because it's at length. I am going to paraphrase C.S. Lewis. So forgive me for that if... If, if I do it, yeah, if I, you'll forgive me. C.S. Lewis says this about persecution. He says that you and I should be less concerned about whether we feel love for our enemy, less concerned about whether we feel this emotion of love for our enemy, and you and I as Christians should be much, much more concerned to actually get on and do it. Less concerned about how we're feeling. Is there love for my enemy? Less concerned with that much more concerned to get on with the task. What do you think of that quote? You know what I think of the quote? I think it's biblical. Because what is it that Jesus says to us in Luke 6? He says to us, love your enemy and do good to those who persecute you. Love your enemies and do good. So friend, are you facing persecution? Are you in the office being ridiculed? Are you at university being ridiculed? With your family being ridiculed? You have to step back from that and you've got to consider, how can I show love to those people? Like, what can I do to actually act for their benefit, act for their welfare, for their good? We speak, but we also have to act. And then the last of these bullet points, we also have to pray for our enemy. And I hope if you're with me this morning, you can see that that is the focus of our portion of Scripture this morning. Just cast your eyes for the last time. Cast your eyes on the text. Look at verse 44. This is the last time I'll ask you to do it. Look at it. Jesus says, love your enemies. And then he says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. That, friend, we must be consistently, I'm going to suggest even daily praying for those who are ridiculing us for our Christian faith. What do we pray for? Let's not make that mistake where we pray that the persecution would stop, that that's the only thing we pray. Jesus does not say, ah, love your enemies and pray for the persecution to stop. He tells you to pray for the persecutor. What do we pray for? We pray for their salvation. We pray for their soul, that God would have mercy on them, work them by grace. After all, isn't that exactly the example that Lord Jesus Christ has set for you? Because what happens when you look back at the cross? What do you see? You see, under the weight of the guilt and condemnation for your sin and facing death, what does Jesus Christ on the cross take time to do? You know the answer. On the cross, in pain and agony, he takes time to pray, to pray for his enemy, his persecutor, and to pray and ask that his father might forgive them for what they do. Are you struggling with this? Is this real for you? 
You must speak kindly. You must act generously. You must pray consistently for those people who are our enemies. And I just close with this last thought to the people in this room who do not know Jesus. What a thought for the rest of us. But there are people in these seats here who don't know Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I want to say this to you. Yeah, the Bible makes clear that by nature, you and me, by nature, are enemies with God as we come into the earth. Your nature, an enemy of God. The Bible makes that clear. The Bible also makes it clear there's an opportunity of salvation. That's great news, right? An opportunity through the Lord Jesus Christ to be reconciled with God, to be enemies no more. There's opportunity there. This is what I want to say to you. That opportunity doesn't go on and on and on forever. And if you remain unrepentant of your sin, and if you remain outside of Jesus Christ, if you meet, if you remain ignoring the Lord God and his offer of salvation, you've got to listen to this. In your death, God is going to view you and treat you as his enemy forever and ever and ever and ever. If you remain unrepentant, God views you in death as an enemy and he treats you as an enemy forevermore. Listen, not a shred of common grace in your death. In light of that, surely your ears pick up, your heart is moved, and you seize the opportunity that is before you today. You come to Jesus for salvation from your sin. And if you do that, oh, isn't it precious? Isn't it a beautiful thing? If you come to Jesus Christ, reconciliation with God, enemies no more with God in Christ Jesus. There's not enmity, but there is peace everlasting with almighty God. Enemies with God no more. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's worship our King. Gracious Father, we uh, confess our sin, first of all. We know that in the way that we have lived, even as Christians, that we have not loved our enemies as we ought to do. We don't even love our neighbors as we ought to do, Lord God. And so we confess our sin. We thank you for this portion of Scripture that shows us that we are to imitate our Father in these things. That As you have extended common grace, we are to love all that as you have loved your enemies at the cross of Calvary, so we are to go out and love those who persecute us. Lord, help us in these things, we ask. Not that our name might advance, not that this church might grow. Help us in these things, that the Lord Jesus might receive all of the praise. And we pray in his name. Amen.